Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party, where we are trying to separate fact from fiction and science from sci-fi, and most importantly, the fluff from the fundamentals in today's Washington foreign policy and national security arena. We are so happy to have Mitchell Plitnik, writer and president of Rethinking Foreign Policy, to talk to us about Israel and Russia. But first, let's talk about that Biden speech over the weekend in Warsaw, Poland, meant to bolster NATO allies and Ukraine's neighbors against the ongoing Russian invasion next door, Biden delivered a Churchillian stemwinder, calling Vladimir Putin a dictator and compelling his audience to be clear-eyed about the protracted, long, hard slog ahead. Ripping out a page from recent Washington playbooks, a la George Bush, and as though the ghost of the recently departed Madeleine Albright was hovering over the stage, He cast the moment as a global conflict between good and evil. And then he dropped this bomb. Speaking from the grounds of the Royal Castle in Warsaw, Poland, U.S. President Joe Biden forcefully declared Russian President Vladimir Putin must go. For God's sake, this man cannot remain powerful. The Washington foreign policy establishment then went into a full lather, demanding to know whether regime change was the new White House policy. His aides quickly walked his comics back, saying that Biden meant to convey that Putin should not be allowed to exercise power over his neighbors or the region. But on Monday, Biden seemed to do some more word shuffling, telling reporters alternatively that there was nothing to walk back and that he said what he said in a fit of moral outrage. Dan, I'm not sure what I'm more concerned about here, the fact that he said something that his aides were forced to walk back as though he went terribly off script, or that Biden himself seems hesitant to truly clarify his statements, like this really is his policy, or perhaps it was a trial balloon, as they say in Washington. Either way, it's all really disturbing. It is, because it's, I mean, I think on one hand, it's it seems like it's a case of, of careless Biden rhetoric where he lets himself get ahead of his own policy and ends up endorsing a position that that no one in his administration actually believes in. And so he, in that way, he could end up trapping himself into a policy that he doesn't really want to pursue. Uh, or or he's actually recklessly stumbling ahead with a, a regime change policy that nobody has thought through because nobody even contemplated this as a possibility until now uh, within within the administration. And so it's it's either it's either a mistake uh, as a flub or it's a mistake as, as a, a serious error. But, but there, there's really no good way to, to spin this in Biden's favor. Uh, if it was simply him expressing his moral outrage, well, why why did he need to express that outrage in the at the end of a policy speech in Poland, uh, connected with his larger vision for what uh, this grand conflict with autocracy is supposed to be about. Uh, the fact that he said it at the very end of the speech makes everyone conclude that this is the, the logical conclusion of his policy. Right. And that, that is, in fact, the goal of this long struggle against autocracy. It is to remove autocrats from power. Right? And so it, 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 it kind of defies logic to say that, oh, he just happened to say it because he was so worked up. When he was basically laying out the argument leading up to it for the entire speech. So I, I don't I don't really buy the he didn't mean it. Uh, and so that, that raises a question of why would you say something like yeah. that when when you need 
you actually need Putin's cooperation to bring the war to an end more quickly than than not, uh, and you you actually need Putin's cooperation to keep this from escalating into something larger. Uh, if he feels cornered, if he feels as though he has no alternatives, he may decide he has nothing to lose and, and may, if not widen the war, he may intensify the war in Ukraine. Uh, and, and the only people that lose there, well, uh, in addition to, to Russian forces, but the, the Ukrainian people would be the ones to bear the brunt of that. Uh, and so I, I don't see how that can possibly be a responsible way to proceed. And I mean, it's, it's funny uh, that, that Biden said this man cannot remain in power when we we honestly don't have a way of removing him. Uh, we're we're making threats that we can't possibly, or I mean, maybe we're making threats. It sounds like we're making threats that we can't possibly follow through on, short of triggering Armageddon. And so, why why would you indulge that feeling of moral outrage when you know there's nothing you can actually do? And and just as a, a final point, I would note that Biden doesn't seem to have this problem when dealing with any other dictatorial governments. He doesn't randomly call for the downfall of any other rulers in the world. Uh, it doesn't occur to him to just say that off the cuff. So why would he say it here? It's it's a, a really uh, irresponsible thing to do. And and I, I hope that they the, the upshot is that they've now disavowed regime change as a goal so many times now that they, they really have to stick with that as the official policy. Yeah. I mean, immediately after the statements or the speech, you know, Twitter was a fire with, with concern that Biden uh, was losing his mental acuity and sort of wandered off the reservation in this speech. But when you watch the speech on television or on video, rather, it looks like it was part of the written, the written transcript. He doesn't look like he's ad, ad-libbing at all, like during press conferences where he sort of mutters around and, and sort of meanders into one statement or the other. This was a pretty clear, as you've heard, a clear statement of regime change. Um, and I think there was a struggle afterwards between the aides walking it back and his supporters on Twitter and the Washington's uh, policy establishment to throw him under the bus and make it look like he had just been ad-libbing. This is just one more Joe Biden gaffe. I mean, I'm sure you saw the tweets, you know, that he has a history of 30, 40 years of making gaffes. And now he's, you know, and uh, he's reaching uh, old age. It's, it's getting worse and they have to contain him a little more. And I found that pretty disturbing in itself, that there was so much energy put into explaining this away as you know, Joe Biden is an old man who's who's uh, gaff prone and he's just wandering off and they have to contain him a little better. I'm not sure that reassures me. And it doesn't reassure the American people when you see a recent poll saying that 70 percent of Americans are not uh, have no confidence in how he's handling this Russia Ukraine situation. So that leaves what that leaves you know, uh, the idea that maybe this was a trial balloon on behalf of the White House to put out this regime change and see how it was accepted. Now, I some folks, particularly in my camp, who do not prefer a regime change policy, say it was a good thing because there was uh, across the board admonishment, you know, at least on Twitter, uh, that this should not be our 
policy. But I don't know. I, I, I saw mixed reviews, actually. And I do think that there is a domestic audience for the kind of speech that he made. And that brings me to my third point. Was this uh, regime change line or even the overall theme of the speech, this Manichaean good versus evil a la George W. Bush, was this more designed or designed in part for a domestic audience? Uh, was this a, a political gambit in which he comes off as this Churchillian figure, but at what expense? And I, I think there probably is a lot of that uh, involved in, in the writing of the speech that they they intended it to be directed to a U.S. audience or to a, more broadly a Western audience, right. and that this was about about rallying uh, our side, uh, so to speak. And so Putin serves as the useful foil for that, and so he he becomes the the focus of it. Um, but I, I think there there really is a, a concern here because he he has already several times. Uh, labeled Putin in, in very uh, using very strong language to label Putin as a war criminal, as a butcher, uh, and which is accurate as far as it goes. Right, he, he is a war criminal. I, I have no problem acknowledging as much. But it's it's curious to me, or it's, it's it's notable to me that that label doesn't get applied very freely uh, when dealing with other leaders of governments where it would also be appropriate. Uh, that's something that, generally speaking, presidents refrain from saying because they realize it's going to make relations with that government much more difficult. And so, obviously, when you go out and say that that the leader cannot remain in power, mm -hmm. uh, you're 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 escalating even beyond calling him a war criminal. Uh, you're, you're essentially saying that he's illegitimate, that he should be deposed or or assassinated uh, as soon as possible, and you're you're, you're essentially expressing your. In, encouragement and, and support for that outcome, which, uh, if nothing else, I think will probably lead to a final rupture in diplomatic relations with Moscow, which we don't want to have because we need to be able to talk to them if we're going to be able to resolve this, not to mention any other outstanding issues that we may have that they're involved in, uh, such as the nuclear deal or, or the renewed crisis in Karabakh or uh, the conflict in Syria. And you know, so there, there are many other issues to be kept in mind when dealing with a power like Russia, and it's it's not it's not responsible to simply uh, write them off and, and say you know, we're going to be accept not dealing with them at all. Uh, but that's what this kind of rhetoric implies that we're we're essentially treating this guy as a political pariah, and we we await his doom. Uh, that, that seems like a it's not going to lead to a very productive set of uh, talks uh, either between the Ukrainians and the Russians or between us and the Russians. So my question for the Biden administration would be, if if it's not a call for regime change, what what was the point of saying it? And if it was just to express outrage, surely the policies that we've already instituted with the sanctions and our support for the Ukrainian government, have already conveyed that message. So why does he need to say it? Yeah. Uh, when when the downsides of saying it are so clear. Yeah, I agree. And he, the fact that the United States or the, the the Washington foreign policy establishment has responded in in a way where, aside from the restrainers like myself and yourself, in a way that. Uh, I saw as a little troubling where 
they were particularly happy with the idea that there would be regime change makes me think that this was indeed a trial balloon uh, to sort of take a measure of how much support he might have uh, for that kind of policy. But I can only look to examples like Syria more recently in which there was a policy of regime change in this country uh, in which we did say that Bashar Assad could not remain in power. And what happened there? Nothing. He basically won the war and we lost a lot of our bargaining power in which we are no longer really at the table. I don't even know if we want to be, but talks were going on without us, very important peace talks without us because of our policy of regime change. You can't walk that back uh, once you've established that as, as a policy. So when the target of your regime change uh, policy remains in power because you are unable to unseat him, then you lose all of the influence you have for making things better on the ground there um, and being part of the negotiations. Or you have a regime change policy like in Iraq where you actually do depose or uh, in Libya, and then you have a um, unintended failed state left behind because you don't have any plan uh, for what happens after the regime change. And we see that in Iraq and we see that even worse in Libya today where we literally helped uh, assassinate their leader and they still do not have a functioning uh, government and there is fighting and proxy wars all over the landscape there. Um, I do want to point out before we run out of time that this wasn't the only thing that Biden said that drew attention and concern over the weekend. He literally told a group of 82nd Airborne uh, troops that they would be in Ukraine soon. He said, I don't have the quote in front of me right here, but he said something to the effect of, you'll see when you are in Ukraine what the conditions are there. And then his people had to walk that back. No, 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 our troops are not going to be in, in Ukraine. He also made a comment. Somebody asked him about the use of, of chemical weapons and asking him what would happen if Russia had used chemical weapons. And he said something to the effect of, well, if they use them, then we will respond in kind. So I, I believe those last two statements were indeed, you know, his gaff prone uh, mistakes in action. But still, that's that's an incredible record over a weekend of the president making really um, problematic <laughs> comments uh, to an international audience at a time when every when people are hanging on every word. Right. And, and that's the thing with, with presidential statements, as we've seen over the years, they're, they're not treated the same as, as anyone just offering up an opinion. Exactly. Uh, when, pre, when the president speaks, it is assumed that he is speaking on behalf of the government, that he is speaking uh, on a question of what the, the current U.S. policy is. And and to give Biden credit, he has actually been very good on shooting down arguments for escalation in every other respect. He he ruled out sending U.S. forces in from the beginning. He uh, has shot down, uh, so to speak, the, the no-fly zone idea again and again. And they've even blocked the transfer of MiGs from Poland uh, because they, they fear it's too escalatory. 
And so I, I think in general, their instincts and their, the way that they've responded to all of this has been uh, pretty good, uh, which makes the, the carelessness of this statement all the more kind of shocking because it, it is so out of keeping with what we have seen over the last few months uh, where they have tried to be very measured and very careful. Uh, and and in terms of the domestic audience, we know that there are people ag- ag- agitating for uh, making regime change the condition for sanctions relief for Russia. We talked about one of those ideas just last week on this show, where uh, sanctions relief would not be provided until Putin was out of power, uh, which is a, another way of saying basically sanctions relief is not going to be forthcoming in exchange for peace in Ukraine, uh, which is a good way to make sure that there is no peace. And so that's it's very concerning because there, there certainly is an audience of hardliners that love to hear this, that, that welcome this kind of rhetoric, and they're going to take advantage of this and throw it back in Biden's face every time he tries to reach some kind of compromise with Russia, as, as I think he eventually will have to do. Uh, and they'll say, well, you said that Putin can't even remain in power, so how can you talk to him? And, and so he, he traps himself by making these sorts of statements, you know, and, and they may be sincere statements of outrage, fair enough. But, but because he's the president, he's not free to just hold forth and offer his opinions about these things as though he's speaking in a personal capacity, because when he's speaking publicly as the president, he's not in a personal capacity. And so he, he has to bear that in mind and, and not make a mistake like this again. Well, I'm very happy today to introduce Mitchell Plitnik, who is president of Rethinking Foreign Policy. His previous positions include vice president at the Foundation for the Middle East Peace, director of the U.S. Office of Basalem, and co-director of Jewish Voice for Peace. His writing has appeared in Haaretz, The New Republic, Jordan Times, Middle East Report, the San Francisco Chronicle, and many more. He was columnist for Tacoon Magazine, Zeke Magazine, and Susian. He has spoken all over the country on Middle East politics and has also appeared on Pacific Hill Radio, CNBC, Asia, and many other outlets. And he writes at his own blog at rethinkingforeignpolicy.org. Welcome, Mitchell. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. Thank you for being here. I, you know, I'm very excited to have you with us today. You've written a great deal for Responsible Statecraft about U.S.-Israel policy, um, and most recently about Israel's posturing on the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Um, Mm -hmm. You had written a piece, I think it was in March, early March 3rd, um, something to the effect of why is Israel MIA on the U.S. or on the uh, Ukraine crisis conflict, something Mm -hmm. to that effect. Um, You wrote in that piece, and I'm quoting you now, Israel has been on the sidelines of diplomacy from the outset, even while American, French, German, and other leaders communicated directly with their Russian and Ukrainian counterparts. Russia and Ukraine needed no Israeli help to meet directly earlier this week. Indeed, other than embarrassing the United States by refusing to support its admittedly quixotic Security Council resolution, Israel has played no role at all. This has not endeared it either to Ukraine or to Russia. Now, I realized you wrote this several weeks ago, and much mm-hmm. has happened since then. So can you tell us, has Israel stepped up in any way? And if not, why? 
So, um, yeah, things have certainly changed since I wrote that. Um, however, what, what hasn't changed is that Israel really hasn't been part of um, the, the U.S. and European efforts uh, to, to uh, move things forward and to support Ukraine. Israel has largely charted its own course um, and has tried to act as a sort of independent arbiter of, um, of the conflict in the hopes that they can broker something. Nothing has really uh, come of that outside of Israel hosting peace talks um, uh, a few days ago. Uh, and, and now those peace talks are being held in Turkey. Uh, Israel has been participating. Uh, there has been some indication from the Ukrainians that Israeli intelligence has been uh, has been working with them, although that how much uh, how much of that is actually going on is unclear. Israel is still trying very hard to walk a fine line um, uh, of, of not alienating Europe and the United States, but also not alienating Russia. Um, they are. Uh, they are outwardly claiming that uh, a lot of that has to do with their ability to operate freely in Syria, or at least as freely as Russia, uh, uh, you know, will agree to. Um, I think that it actually uh, has even more to do with the idea that after the dust settles on the Ukraine conflict, um, there's going to be shifts i think in the in the global uh, balance of power and i think israel is going to be even uh, is going to try to chart even more of a middle course between the united states and europe on the one side and china and russia uh, on the other and i think that that is guiding a lot of their thinking right now can you go back to the syria issue can you explain for our listeners what you mean when you say that israel needs to continue to operate in Syria and needs Russian assistance to do that. Yeah, so Israel regularly uh, bombs uh, Hezbollah and uh, Iranian militia sites in Syria. Um, the usual modus operandi that they employ is that they carry out an attack. They don't actually take responsibility, but they do talk about um, uh, trying to disrupt uh, the flow of Iranian and and or Russian weapons to Hezbollah uh, at their closer to their borders in either northern Syria or in Lebanon. Um, in order to do that without provoking a larger larger conflict, Israel coordinates with Russia. This is done openly, and and everyone is well aware of it. Um, the the idea is that. Uh, and, and this was part of the agreement, actually, that uh, Israel came to during the, the uh, Trump administration, um, that, uh, that, that Israel would coordinate with Russia. It would, uh, it would limit its targets to certain areas um, that Russia agrees are uh, important to disrupting that flow of weapons, and Russia will not do anything to stop them. Syria might, uh, and does occasionally, um, you know, fire anti-aircraft uh, weapons at Israeli planes. But Israel is more than capable of um, of dealing with that, and um, they don't necessarily ask Russia to fully restrain Syria. Syria has its own reasons to want to make sure to respond to that, but they do want to make sure that Russia does not get involved. Uh, that that would lead to a conflict that uh, Israel very much does not want, and frankly, neither does Russia. So uh, they want to make sure that that. Uh, that their ability to do that continues. So just to be clear that they are walking a fine line so that they will be able to continue <laughs> bombing another sovereign country. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just kind of wanted to, exactly. to put that out there. And, and not only that, but that they have the permission of a third power right. uh, to, to, to bomb that other so- sovereign country. So, you know, and I know you hinted at this in the piece, but I mean, is that more important to Israel? Those conditions uh, be, you know, remain consistent for them than their relationship to the United States. Well, um, I think there's two things about that. First of all, the United States has kind of sent Israel the message that, uh, you know, they, they may frown at them for a day or two, but there are no consequences uh, uh, to their thwarting U.S. ambitions and U.S. Uh, plans. Um, they've sent that message again with their, uh, when Israel decided that it would not support, uh, even though it's not on the U.N. Security Council, uh, the U.S. very much wanted Israel's public support for their attempt to get a Security Council resolution uh, passed, which of course was never going to happen because Russia was going to veto it, uh, condemning Russia for its invasion for Ukraine. Israel refused to even do that, even though they knew that that the resolution would not pass. I am personally of the opinion that Russia would not have taken such great defense at that, that they would have stopped cooperating with Israel. But in any case, the United States expressed its displeasure and quickly moved on. Um, so Israel doesn't feel that anything it does is going to, you know, they, they keep pushing the envelope and they, they are looking very carefully to see if, is there a line that we can cross, uh, that is going to bring a U.S. response. And so far the answer has been at each step, no, this, at least this line is not that one that's going to provoke that response. So I, I don't think they're that concerned about that. And I think the other part is what I mentioned earlier, that Israel um, recognizes that the United States uh, and, and certainly the Biden administration uh, and and really, I think this this will turn out to be bipartisan in the long run, really just wants to limit its involvement in the Middle East. So Israel is trying to chart its own course. However, Russia and China, Russia in particular, are trying to increase their involvement in in the region. So I think Israel is um, trying to set a, a course that uh, allows it to work most to to its greatest advantage with both sides. So that takes us to the meetings uh, today or yesterday <clears throat> in Israel. And I know as as of this recording, it'll be a few days hence. But that that Israel had hosted the United States Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, as well as uh, the um, leadership of, I believe it was four Arab countries involved in the Abraham Accords. And the whole idea was that there there was this this bolstering of the relationships between all of the countries. But I got the sense and I get this mixed this mixed feeling where, like you said, that there is this acknowledgement that the United States is receding and it's it's influence or it's it's security guarantees in the region, but they're also sending a message to Blinken that we want you to stick around. Uh, we have issues that we need to, to get through, uh, including the Iran nuclear deal and uh, the the pressures coming down from uh, Russia, Ukraine. But, you know, as one of my colleagues, Jim Loeb, had written uh, for Responsible Statecraft today was this seemed like a, a strange time to be holding this meeting 
you know, Blinken and 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 several of the the biggest autocrats in 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 the region, Israel, which has its own record with the Palestinians, you know, uh, all holding hands for pictures when you know two days before Biden was talking about autocracies versus democracies. What what was the deal with this, and why is Blinken spending his time, this precious time, on these meetings? Well, there's a. I think there's a, a couple of different things that are coming together here. So one is, I think Jim Jim Loeb's article, which I, I happen to read, um, was spot on. Um, it, it is a terrible, terrible look for the United States to, on the one hand, be talking about this uh, coalition of democracies that is opposing autocratic Russia, which, by the way, is is extremely imprecise. There are some pretty big democracies that are not part of that coalition, yeah. including, uh, you know. It, it, to the extent that, that you can call Israel a democracy, to the extent that you can call India, which is the, the, the most populous uh, democracy, for all the it, those two countries' authoritarian flaws, they have democratic structures uh, that Russia does not, for example. Um, so uh, it, it's, not, it's not such a clear dividing line. And I think that's reinforced, as, as Jim points out, by the fact that... Uh, the United States is sitting, brokering a meeting with, uh, you know, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain and Morocco, with, along with Egypt, uh, which is not part of the Abraham Accords, but of course has a longstanding peace treaty uh, uh, with Israel brokered, you know, um, over 40 years ago. <clears throat> so um, that that comes together with, the, that needs to be enhanced. The, the, the Abraham Accords that brought uh, uh, Israel together with the UAE, Morocco, and Bahrain, um, that needs to be enhanced and built upon because the real goal of that, as has kind of emerged from some of the statements that ha that were made after the meeting, uh, the real goal of that was to put together a military coalition that could serve as a bulwark against Iran. Um, again, uh, sort of compensating for a re an anticipated reduced uh, U.S. military presence in the Persian Gulf region. Um, that is the vision, the, the true essence of the Abraham Accords. Trade it will be happening. Trade was happening before more clandestinely. Obviously, it will expand now. That's not unimportant. But I think this is the key thing. So on the one hand, you have the United States trying to cooperate uh, uh, with building this coalition so it can move on. But on the other hand, also trying to uh, address the... Uh, and trying to sort of tamp down or, or mute to some extent the objections of Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and also, uh, very importantly, the Saudis, uh, even though they're not officially involved in the Abraham Accords, this affects them as well. Um, those countries are very strongly opposed to the Iran nuclear deal. And Blinken is trying to, um, you know, lower the volume so that they will at least let let the uh, the agreement go through without lobbying against it too hard in Washington. I I think recent experience kind of shows that that is a uh, a pretty vain hope. Um, Israel has been uh, has been more and more vocal gradually, and certainly nothing on the level of Netanyahu, uh, who who actually you know arranged to speak before a joint session of Congress to oppose the deal in 2015. Um, but uh, the, the Bennett government has gradually stepped up its rhetoric against the Iran deal. The United Arab Emirates has very clearly opposed it, as have the Saudis. Uh, and in fact, uh, famously, um, they have been unwilling to really discuss 
these matters with either Blinken or the president of the United States. Um, they're not even taking their phone calls on these matters. So um, I think that is a is a vain hope, but it is what they're trying to do. Um, and it does. The fact is, it does weaken the prospects for uh, the Iran deal, even if it, uh, and, and as I expect, it will some form of it anyway, will come to to uh, to finally pass. I, I I think that's what's going to happen, although still a bumpy road. But even if it does, I think there will continue to be backlash and fights against it, as we saw again in 2015. Uh, that is what Biden and Blinken are trying to avoid. But you know, they're they're. Their approach is very, very uh, is to walk very softly uh, with um, uh, with with Israel and the Saudis uh, to not to try and uh, you know rebuke them for their opposition to the deal and their actual, frankly, undermining of the deal. Um, that rather than confront that, they've tried to to uh, you know use very nice words and uh, polite uh, conversation, and that's clearly not working. So um, that's where you see, I think, sort of different tendencies coming out of this meeting that Blinken held with, uh, with the with the four Arab nations and uh, and Israel, and I think the the direction is not a very good one for um, for U.S. policy. But it seems nobody really wants to confront um, not only Israel but also again the UAE and the Saudis. Um, there was every opportunity to confront the UAE and the Saudis over the war in Yemen which is very unpopular among Americans across the board, uh, not only on the left, but also very much in the center and on the right. Um, there is widespread opposition to this war. And, and Biden has gone back on virtually every promise he's made to, uh, to do something about it. So um, I, I think we're generally seeing an unwillingness to take the steps that would be necessary uh, to get what the United States ostensibly wants um, at the same time as these countries are saying, well, fine, then we're just going to take more and more. Unfortunately, I think that's the case, Mitchell. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Uh, speaking of Yemen, uh, that was uh, infamously the Obama administration's attempt uh, originally to reassure the Saudis and the UAE of U.S. backing uh, mm -hmm. while the, the nuclear deal negotiations were still ongoing. And we've seen the, the horrible consequences of that desire to, to reassure these clients over the last seven years. Uh, nearly 400,000 people in Yemen have died. Uh, and that's that's the, the UN uh, projection. Uh, it's likely that the casualties are even higher than that, that we don't know about, but uh, it's it's been a, a complete catastrophe. And so seeing this summit in, in the Negev was very concerning because it's being framed in the same way in, this, in terms of this reassurance. Yeah. And every time we, we go to reassure these governments, that uh, seems to me to be uh, just a green light for them to engage in even more uh, atrocious behavior. Uh, yeah. So where where, uh, where is that line uh, that they're not allowed to cross? Uh, so far, the Biden administration hasn't uh, actually drawn one, right? Yeah, I mean, the problem is, and, and I think I, I need to be blunt about this, the problem is it's happening in Yemen. Uh, it is not happening in Ukraine. It is not happening in, uh, frankly, a white country. It is not happening in a European country. Uh, it's not happening in a country that most Americans care about outside of, I, I do think most Americans, and again, you know, across the board, I think do care that we are contributing to the deaths of, of hundreds of thousands of civilians. 
I think they do care about that. But I do think also it doesn't become the same political issue. Uh, Yemen, and, and it's not, you know, part of it is the racial issue. Part of it is the fact that these are Arabs. Uh, so there's, there's the anti-Arab racism. But there's also, I mean, let's face it, the fact that Yemen is uh, a country that is not key to the world economy. Um, it's not clear key to any, you know, necessarily to any economic uh, interest that anyone has. Uh, certainly not in the way that Ukraine, which is, you know, a major exporter of very important, you know, items, especially wheat, as we know that everyone's, you know, paying so much attention to that right now. Um, so there's, there, they can get away with it. And I don't know that there's anything at all, um, you know, especially considering the fact that, as I said, you know, there has been a popular outcry about what's happening in Yemen. And it has been, you know, not just from, you know, people yelling about uh, the people from, frankly, my camp who are talking about peace and human rights and international law. There, there's been that, but it's also come from people who are saying, why are we involved in this? Why are we spending our money on this? Why are we supporting the Saudis doing this from very, you know, conservative um, uh, uh, arenas that often can be very hawkish and in this case are certainly not. And still it goes on. Uh, and it goes on to appease the Saudis and the uh, Emiratis. Um, and as you say, it doesn't really work. Um, you know, in this case, I think, while I do think there are times that appeasement might, might not be a bad idea, in this case, we've tried it and it's failed. And yet the Biden administration simply tries it again. Why is it failing? I think a key reason is that the Saudis and Emiratis in particular, um, and, and quite possibly the, the Israelis as well, all want to see a Republican back in the White House. Uh, none of them like the Biden administration. All of them uh, liked the Trump administration. Um, they prefer that sort of disengagement that Trump represented because it, it, it completely disregarded human rights, international law, and any sense of, uh, any sense of really looking forward to a better future um, for uh, in increasing material benefits of the moment. And um, I think... That is something that is, suits the Gulf, the Gulf monarchies well. It suits Israel well. And I have maintained, and, and I think the evidence is there, that this is an active campaign to undermine the Biden presidency. And frankly, it's working. And frankly, Biden's doing everything he can to help because he's not confronting it. Um, and I don't see that, unfortunately, changing any time soon. And we've seen that with uh, the, the way that the Biden administration has handled the nuclear deal over the last year. Uh, much to our frustration. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you now see uh, Israeli Prime Minister Bennett coming out saying uh, Iran without a, the nuclear agreement is a poor country, an isolated country, a country that has no international legitimacy and no immunity from a military option. Uh, he said that earlier this week. Yes, And, and that really uh, highlights the fact that what Israel is interested in is not non-proliferation or keeping the nuclear program under restrictions, uh, mm -hmm. despite what some uh, what some of their leaders have sometimes said. What they want is to keep Iran in a box and, and to keep it uh, under punishing sanctions. And so given that that is their standard, or given that they, they have no interest in a non-proliferation non agreement, and neither do the, the Gulf states, uh, why, why is it that it's, there, there's still this desire to try to reassure them or to keep them quiescent when, when it, they, they have, they're, they're talking about two completely different things. Uh, yeah. 
No, I think um, I, I think this is part of the problem with the group. The, there's a few there's a few issues here. Uh, one is the 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 one that is frequently mentioned: the intense lobbying by Saudi Arabia, the United, the Emirates in particular, and of course Israel uh, in this direction um, to keep the United States engaged and and interested in in, in the ways you, that you describe. I think also there's a lot of self-deception in Washington, uh, in the foreign policy community, about how badly these countries need and want the United States, and how they don't. The idea and the belief is that they don't see an option uh, in China and Russia, and I think that's a mistake. Um, I think they. Uh, clearly they know that the United States is not going to cut off Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They, they, you know, the West needs the oil. Everyone knows this. Um, but if that, if those relationships are diminished, if those relationships are scaled back, um, that if it's only a diminishment, that those are areas that China and Russia can make up for um, in military, uh, military aid military sales and, and, and things of that nature and intelligence um, the, the other things that that these countries depend on the United States for, there, there's a gap there that that if there's only a gap, uh, only a diminishment, say it's seventy percent of what it is now. Well, Russia and China can do that. If it if the if there's a real break, Russia and China cannot make up for what the United States can give them, since they know the United States is kind of trapped. Um, they are just basically disregarding this, and I think there's a, a real sense of uh, of uh, you know blinders in Washington. Um, to the fact that we don't really hold all the cards here. Um, we are not the ones in charge. We are not uh, able to threaten the Emiratis and Saudis by saying, you know, we are not going to give you these things because they know that we will. And if we give them a little bit less, if, if Congress suspends this sale or that sale, well, they can live with that. And if they need to go elsewhere, they'll go to China. Right, well, unfortunately, on that note, we'll have to close it out. Uh, we're out of time for this episode. But, uh Thank you uh, very much for coming on, uh, Mitchell Plitnik. Uh, thanks for being thanks here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Mitchell. Thanks. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.